The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I think I might have mentioned this earlier in the course, but when you find the right, a better time for you to practice at home, it's nice when you set the amount of time you're going to be sitting, it's nice to build in some time after you're done sitting and you know you can get uh, a little timer for your cell phone there's a number of free meditation timer I think one is called one app is like meditation timer another one that uh, the basic app is free it's called insight timer and then the nice thing is it just has a nice sound it's not like your normal clock on your phone that. You know, some of the ringtones are okay, but but you can get a nice gong sound like we have here. So, but you set it, so then you have at least, you know, a few minutes after the bell rings, so you don't have to rush up immediately and get out, go to work or whatever's next for you. But you can hang out, you can stretch, and you can just have a little space where you can notice what... Having done that set, that meditation, what's the effect, cause and effect? Like, how's the mind? Because we can have a hellish set, like a lot of unpleasantness, mental unpleasantness, bodily unpleasantness. But the aftertaste, oh yeah, that, that really hurt, but it felt really right to do. I'm glad I did it. It, like the uh, reverberation seems really good. Does that make sense? So it's really important to check because what really helps us stick with the practice is that more subtle, deeper sense, this is good medicine. So that when we have a good set and it's really pleasant, great, but What's more trustworthy is not how nice, how much calm there was during the sit, but what did it set in motion for me? Is that trustworthy? And that way we're not so pushed around by whether the particular sit was a pleasant sit or a hellish sit. We just keep doing it because we sense, we intuit what's happening. Like we're becoming a different human being. <laughs> It's changing us. But it's gradual and it's subtle. So if we don't actually get interested and sense what's getting set in motion, it's easy to give it up, you know? Because I could be watching TV <laughs> or, you know, whatever else we'd sleeping a little bit more or whatever else we might do with our time. And not that any of that stuff would necessarily be bad. But we want to have a sense like, in Buddhism we call it onward leading. The practice is onward leading. It changes things. But it's gradual and generally subtle. But subtle is significant in spiritual life. So I wanted to mention that piece, just it's that pragmatic piece about giving yourself a little time just to check in. What was that? Like even now, 
you know, having sat for 30 minutes or so. What was that? And, you know, we have one more week left, and so I want to make sure just to encourage you, if you haven't yet, take a look at the instructions for walking meditation that's included in the handouts and experiment with it. And it might be that for, you know, you put aside 20 minutes or at least 15, and you just walk back and forth. You'd say you have a relatively long hallway in your home. You know, and I know it seems like a little weird, <laughs> but there's, uh, especially if you have a lot of physical pain when you're sitting, you might, your mind might be more balanced doing walking meditation. And the other place that you can do it, of course, you can do it outside. Um, it's, you can do it like when you walk around one of the lakes or walk through a park, but you know, we tend to get in a, the habit of just people watching or dog watching when we're out there or tree watching, bird watching. And we forget to be aware that this is being known. So generally that's why it's good to read the instructions because it will give you some hints about how to stay aware of the present moment, mindful awareness. Like one thing you can do when you're uh, walking more, you know, like from your car to your office or through a park, around a lake, is you could just rotate between the visual experience, uh, the sensitive, the sensitivity to seeing, you know, so let's say, you know, you just don't, you don't have to be exact, of course, 45 seconds or a minute, and you're just attending to the sensitivity to seeing, seeing is being known. And you're not like looking around, you're just, you know, you're, you're kind of looking in front of you, but in, in that sort of soft gaze kind of way. And what wisdom is doing is just recognizing, oh yeah, scenes being known. It's just seeing, 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 scenes being known. You don't have to say that continuously in your mind, but you get the idea, right? And then switch to hearing. Now you're still going to still, <laughs> you're still going to be seeing, but your interest which you're paying attention to are the sounds. And not any particular sound, but the whole ocean of sound. Hearing is being known. So that, you know, 45 seconds, a minute, something like that. And then the third thing, switch to bodily sensations. And you can, you know, use the each foot making contact with the floor or the earth, but it's really the totality of the body moving sensations are being known. And then you go back to seeing and hearing, and bodily sensations and seeing, hearing, right? You just rotate through those, because those are obviously the three main sensitivities, generally, when we're walking. And then if something big shows up, like some painful memory or some kind of drama from work or something, then you might actually want to stop if it's not too weird and just be aware you know, thinking is being known. And if there are a lot of emotional feelings with the thoughts, feeling, you know, anger is being known. Anger feels like this, or whatever it might be. So that you're not, because sometimes if we're walking and some big kind of mental activity gets set in motion, 
will tend to get identified with the mental activity, which means we're not mindfully aware that it's happening. And that's what we mean by being lost in thought. Okay? So definitely practice all the times you're walking, your dog or just walking for exercise, walking to get from point A to point B, but also try at least a couple times before the end of the class to just do walking meditation. And just, it's totally okay to do it even in a small room, you know, where you're, maybe you're, you know, the biggest room in your place, that's 10 steps. That's fine. You know, you walk 10 steps, because it doesn't really matter, right? Noticing the stopping and the turning and the stopping and the walking, it's not that walking as a support for the continuity of present moment awareness is any more effective than the stopping and the turning and the walking again, right? So you don't need to, don't make a big deal if you have just a small space. Because it isn't about the walking, just like sitting practice isn't about the breathing or about the whole body. It's about present moment, the continuity, the sustained present moment awareness. Because when we sustain present moment awareness, then the wisdom function of the mind can discern what way of being, what way of understanding, what way of relating is skillful or not. So this capacity we all have to discern the causes for this mind to get bound up in stressful ways and for this mind to be releasing of those stressful habits, that's all available to us. But it requires a sustained, non-judging, kind, clear, present moment awareness. The reason we keep doing stuff that are stressful is we simply haven't seen clearly enough that it isn't helpful. We still think we're going to get something. And you can check this out. You know, we all have our bad habits, whatever they are. You know, and it's like, yeah, but I really want to eat a little bit more. I had this experience this afternoon, you know, where I felt like I deserved a treat, so I made a treat. And I made enough for my partner, my spouse, and then I ate what I saved for my spouse. <laughs> True confessions. You know, and then, and then I was full, too full, you know, when I came. And uh, so what, what was the mind, it's like it, on the surface of the attention, the mind was paying attention to the pleasant taste of the pizza, right? And, uh, but, but there was a quiet, there was something else happening in those moments, which was that quiet voice saying something like, I think you're already full, you know, right? But the mind chose not to attend to that more subtle voice, the voice of wisdom, let's call it, and instead it paid attention to the louder, more seductive voice, this stuff tastes good, <laughs> or something like that. So when we have sustained, more 
stability of present moment awareness, all of that is seen. Not just the loud voice, this, is, this tastes good, but also that quieter voice of wisdom that goes, yeah, it tastes good. But if you check now, the belly's already full. There's not really hunger. All that's left is greed, right? And, and that, that discerning part of the mind that needs the continuity and the stability, it understands what gets that emotion when I eat more than I should eat. So it has the capacity to refrain because it sees the big picture. But when, I'm, when our attention is caught by the loudest thing in the mind, but it tastes good, and that's all it's seen, then it's not going to refrain from doing unskillful things. Because it, it's oblivious to the wisdom, not because the wisdom isn't there, but it's 100% because the quality of attention is superficial. And that's what the stability and continuity of present moment awareness provides. The mind, wisdom, sees the whole picture, subtle, gross, understands how things are connected. When you eat more than the body wants, then you hurt, <laughs> and your mind gets fuzzy, and, you know, all the other implications. The other thing I wanted to, uh, before opening it up, uh, next week, uh, week six, the last class, we'll talk about, uh, I'll talk about more practicing throughout the whole day. Because I, I'm sure you've sensed this already, you know, even if you're a fortunate person and you can sit for an hour in the morning or an hour in the evening or whatever, whenever it works for you. So that's, you know, for a lot of people that, that's not possible, or you don't think it's possible, at least. But even that, that still leaves you, you know, whatever, 18, 15 hours, where you're just being mindless. So, if the practice is really going to be effective, the daily formal sitting time is really support for what we could call a lifestyle of mindful awareness, present moment awareness because that's actually what the practice requires. It's gotta be the new habit, the new default habit to be present. So now our habit is to be distracted, lost in thought, and we have moments of being present, right? And maybe even through five weeks of the course, you might just notice in your daily life there are just more moments that just arise almost seemingly spontaneously where you just happen to be present and you know you're present. That's how you know you're present, because you know you're present. <laughs> you know, by definition, that's what mindful awareness is. The mind, wisdom knows that this is being known, right? So you, by definition, you recognize it. So all those moments you didn't recognize being present, you weren't present. You were lost in thought. Even if you tell yourself, no, no, I was present today, doesn't mean you were present. If you were present, you would know you were present. The mind would know it. Oh, it's like this. Like right now, we could know 
we're here and now, we're listening, whatever. And then just like the idea is sustaining it. So just pay attention in daily life, like how to keep the present moment in mind. And, and what kind of conditioning, habit energies do we have that make that seem like a stupid idea? Like what habits, views that we have that oppose or feel threatened by the interest in being present? Like you might even, you might even hear your mind arguing or making an argument that Oh, no, no, it's not okay to be present now. No, this is my time. I don't have to... Mindfulness is work, and I'm done working. I've had a hard day, I'm done. But the effort to be present is very subtle. It doesn't, it's not a, like a muscular effort. You know, so we can be watching stupid TV you know, whatever you do with your favorite beverage and, and a magazine, you know, iPad in front of you and TV and your favorite beverage, you know, and whatever else you might be doing in your shiatsu chair, vibrating your back, eating peanuts, right? So whatever it is for us, but... And then, and then, like, that could be one of those moments that the intention to be mindful shows up. And you might catch yourself, oh, no, no, not now. I'm being ridiculous. I don't really want to know it. But, but just challenge that a little, like, you know, just remind yourself, no, no, it's not about judgment. You do whatever you want to do, you know. Because it's really more about a kind of integration like if we're going to have a life why not be here through all the glory and all the gory <laughs> you know just like so cultivate that value when you notice some pushback oh no that's just something I do for that half an hour in the morning and then honey you get permission to do whatever you want the rest of the day you can be oblivious autopilot, you know, disconnected. So we want to change that, if we have any of that, we want to change that. And, we, and then, you know, use your own language, but something, cultivate some sort of aspiration for this lifestyle or this deep, resonant valuing of being present, being mindfully aware. And you have to, and the nice thing that will happen is you'll have to have a deeper sense it's not a heavy load. Because it does feel like it, you know, when we're sitting, that a lot of the reason, like we have hellish sits, painful sits, is because when we're present, we feel the cumulative stress that's just there anyway from having been living the way we've been living. But the run away from that stress is what causes that stress. So the only way to begin to resolve that background of bodily, emotional, and mental stress is to start being integrated, like connected. It's the only way.
Otherwise, we just, you know, we keep having to run a little faster because the monster, the sort of background of stress gets bigger and bigger. So we have to dance faster. We have to get better at distraction and denial and disconnection, which is the cause for the stress to begin with. Okay, that's enough. So now we have time. We learn a lot from hearing people check in, those of you online, those of you in the room. Um, people in the room, you could sit here so that people online can see and hear you if you don't mind. And uh, people online, you could just go ahead and unmute yourself. Looks like Gwen would like to get us started. Go ahead, Gwen, unmute yourself. It looks like you did already. Hello everyone, I hope to meet you all soon. I've really benefited from this in the MBSR class. That said, I am honored to present a challenge that I'm sure is not unique to me. In the last week, I have discovered, um, unfortunately, that my normal four mile a day habit um, and lifestyle, I'm supposed to stay off my feet for about the next eight weeks. <laughs> And I love walking meditation. It was my first kind of real dedicated foray into meditation. Having said that and having been, you know, encouraged here and also in my MBSR class with Nam Roy last week to explore that further, I began looking for some sort of alteration that I and even quadriplegics or at least paraplegics can explore. And what I found was, and I'd like you to speak to because again, I don't know who's there, but I can't imagine I'm the only person with leg issues. Could you speak to what I'm hearing about is, or what I'm seeing is hand mudras that, you know, involve that similar kind of repetitive motion and, and that gentle motion, but is, is again, sort of, you know, non-combative and not harsh or whatever, anything, but also gets into that rhythm and that focus, please. Yeah, that's a really good point, Gwen. And uh, of course, I can't see everybody online and uh, I don't get cued if people, you know, are, are unable or just not appropriate to walk. Because as I did mention uh, a little bit ago, it isn't about the walking. It's about uh, an alternative to sitting still. There are advantages to sitting still in a quiet space because when the body moves, the mind, the thinking mind tends to move too. Because right? the body and the mind reflect each other quite a bit. They're distinct, but they're de definitely in relationship with each other as we see a lot. So what, basically we want two kinds of practices. We want a practice that supports the most simplicity that's available for us human beings, which generally for most people is sitting, but for some people who have certain body conditions that might be lying down, or for others that might be standing, that the body is relatively still in a quiet room without a lot of clutter right in front of us, preferably, um, and where people will leave us alone because there was just fewer triggers to stimulate mental activity in that setting, right? But sitting still has its own challenges. 
and people can be quite uncomfortable in sitting still. And uh, it can also, for some people, create energy imbalance where the mind gets dull. Even if someone's sitting up quite a bit straight, that still that just given, you know, everyone's a little different in terms of temperament and body issues and energy issues. And the system can be a little too dull. Or another thing that can happen, the shadow of sitting is um, the mind can get a little controlling. You know, in the rarefied air of sitting still, it's sort of that controlling beast of our habit energy sort of can have a field day and sort of be scolding and because there's not much going on. So it, it sort of acts out a little bit. So it's nice to have a alternative of some kind of bodily activity that makes sense for your body. And as Gwen mentioned, you know, there are things you can do with your hands and it doesn't have to be fancy. You know, she mentioned the word mudra. This is just uh, stuff from the East, you know, the Buddha, the statues, you know, they're all doing different mudras. But don't worry about that because it could be you put your hands on your knees, you know, you can make up your own set of gestures that work with your body. Maybe, you know, you're okay just turning your spine back and forth or rolling your shoulders or whatever works for your body if you've learned Tai Chi or Qigong or slow, gentle yoga postures, especially uh, routines that have kind of a seamless easy, uncomplicated flow to them. So you don't have to think about it too much. And you can be in the present moment awareness. Right? So we want a movement sequence that supports the continuity of present moment awareness. And you know, you can, uh, we have uh, Qigong practices here and mindful yoga practices, and they're both in person and online. And you can, you know, they're all on, the ones that are online are often captured and put up on our YouTube channel for anybody to watch. Um, so uh, you can just take advantage of those if walking doesn't make sense for you. Great, thank you, Gwen. Other things people have been learning from their practice that you'd like to share with the group or questions that are emerging? Anybody in the room? Anybody online? Yeah, Carlos, you want to come up though? If you don't mind. Appreciate that. In relation to that, you, were, uh, you guys were talking about understand meditation. I didn't understand first the instruction of uh, choose a comfortable position and then try not to move again. And I don't know if it was from listening to you, listening to other people, or just understood that it was a practice that translated to the rest of our lives in which Sometimes there is something uncomfortable, and it's just uncomfortable. There is nothing beyond that, unless you mention this many times, it's unsafe. But if it's safe, it's uncomfortable. And there was something that quickly translated into the general behaviors and the everyday life in which run into things that are just uncomfortable and they're gonna go away and they're not gonna stay there and nothing happens. Um, for example, an itch that shows up many times and make it the object. I mean, 
there is an itch there, there is an itch, and I start feeling that itch and, and experiencing what that itch uh, feels like it, instead of having to react immediately to it. Uh, that's the thing that I find interesting about the sitting practice, that it lends itself to these uh, challenges. Yeah. That is such an important point. And in, in practice, we call that, I mean, it, it sounds a little heavy, that word restraint or to be able to refrain, but it's exactly what Carlos is talking about, and it's really empowering. And we learn it in these simple ways, like that ritual of sitting relatively still, and related to that is before you know, at the beginning of the sit, we set our timer or we just resolve. Maybe we're just going to have a clock off to the side and we resolve, okay, I can sit for 20 minutes. You know, my day, it makes sense. I know I can sit for 20 minutes. And we resolve, okay, I'm going to sit for 20 minutes and I'm going to be relatively still. And it's okay if you move. It's not about beating yourself up. It's about having these learning opportunities where there's an impulse to move, like Carlos gave the good example of having an itch. But it might even be just being restless, like bored or whatever. And you're thinking about something that's over there and you really want to look, right? But the great thing is, is to see the intention to turn or the intention to scratch or the intention to end your sit early, to see it as something being known and what refrain, you know, to restrain ourselves, to refrain from doing that impulse, all it requires is the recognition, there is the impulse, it feels like this. Is it safe to feel this? Is it okay to feel this? Yeah, I can feel this. And if we feel the impulse, we don't have to act on it. And like Carlos mentions, this is, we, we all have this skill to some degree, to be able to refrain. I mean, if we did every impulse that we had, we'd be in jail or dead or something, right? So we're all the time feeling an impulse, but not acting on it. But now we're really bringing light of awareness to this and really sensing how functional, liberating it is to have all kinds of impulses but just because we have the impulse to think something, to say something, to do something, doesn't mean it's a wholesome, helpful thing to think, say, or do. I mean, you know how it is, like, the mind just, wants, just keeps repeating, thinking the same thing sometimes, right? When we're in one of those loops. And it's so nice to be able to have enough stability and continuity of awareness that we now this is pretty subtle. We sense the impulse to think about it again before we do the thinking. Generally we catch it after we've thought it, right? And if we're lucky in the middle of thinking it. But eventually we can catch the about to moment before we actually go down that road again and dredge up that painful mental image and then react to the mental image we've just dredged up which triggers the mental image and the emotional feeling, which triggers more 
mental content, which triggers more of the emotional feeling, and on and on and on, right? So to catch this and to realize, oh, this is what's happening, and there's this option, which is just to feel, to be with it. This is different than repression. So, because it can look and even sound like, oh, so you're repressing the re emotion. No, we're letting it move. We're just not acting it out with thought, words, and action. But it's got all the space of the sensitive body and mind to do its dance. And we're realizing, oh, this is what re restraint is. It's not repressing the feeling, I want to punch that person. It's feeling the feeling, I want to punch that person. But wisdom knows it's just that feeling. It's just that feeling, it's just that yucky feeling. It feels like this. Can I be with this? Yeah, I can be with this. It's just a feeling, it's just... And then lo and behold, it's not there anymore. Because nothing actually lasts very long. It seems like stuff lasts, but that's because it keeps getting renewed because we get identified and we act it out. And that's just, you know, we're just, it's not the same feeling, it's the same, it's a similar feeling that's been renewed. But, you know, our attention is superficial, so we think, I've been angry for three hours or for 10 minutes, but we haven't. There's, it's been this kind of circular feedback loop. And the way we break it is what Carlos meant. And so when we take up the ritual of sitting still, that's where we're generating it. Sticking with the amount of time we've decided and being relatively still. But you're going to feel a lot of impulses. And then start noticing it during the day. Like especially like if you're in a, a colleague at work or people like myself who have a spouse, you know, and we get triggered and we want to say something. It's just so nice to know I want to say something. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I should say something. So we can just be with the impulse, mindfully aware, feeling what we feel, and maybe we end up saying it. Because it seems like, you know, I bet, but we're, even then we're aware. Because it may be later after we've said it that we really know. I should, I should have just felt what I was feeling and not said it. And it's so interesting, like we can really refrain, 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 and then the, the continuity of present moment awareness wavers, and then all of a sudden we blurt it out, right? Because, because it was a little break in the continuity, and the impulse was still getting triggered to do something, to say something. You know, it's like we've had two bowls of ice cream, there's still more left, you know, and we're still having the impulse. And for three hours, you know, we've refrained from having the third bowl of ice cream. But then we get excited, and before we know it, we're there eating the third bowl, because we lost the continuity of present moment awareness. And it's not about judging ourselves, it's just about, oh, that's interesting. Because the reason why it's not... Buddhist practice is not about judgment, is because the deepest insight that the Buddhist practices lead to is it's all very impersonal. 
these impulses. I mean, in conventional language, we say it's my impulse, you know. But when we actually observe these impulses, they're there and they're real, but in no way are they personal. You're not personally wanting to punch that person or eat the third bowl of ice cream or do all these things. It's arising because of causes and conditions. And it's best to take responsibility without imputing more than what's really there. Oh, sorry, I had the camera in the wrong place. Oops. So we can really be attentive to our experience without imagining that I'm bad or I'm good. It's just stuff being known. The activity of the body and the mind being known. And that's, that's the basic insight. Now here we're hearing it intellectually, but when we see this actually in our experience, it is really life-changing. That what this is for each of us, this subjective experience of me, of having a life, what it is always, and I mentioned this I think the first week, and it's never more than this, what it is is something being known. That's all it is. Not Mark doing this. It's an experience being known. Continuously something is being known. And that's where our practice, the wisdom and awareness, stability of wisdom and awareness, that's where it leads. We're really at this very intimate, immediate, actual level of experience, which is something being known. And then that allows for that wise discernment of what's helpful and unhelpful, what's skillful and unskillful. Because there's no projection, there's no idealism, it's just something being known. And that, that continuity of something being known, it's a rise, it's moving conditionally, right? It's interrelated, interdependent. And how we understand it affects how everything unfolds. So when I am oblivious to what's really going on, then we're kind of like simply on autopilot acting out the predominant habit energies. And when we think about our conditioning processes, you know, having the reptilian brain and, you know, millions of years of evolutionary conditioning and our, through genetics and our cultural conditioning, well, it's no wonder the world's like this. But when we bring understanding, then things really begin to change. So we're not imagining it, there's more than what, what it is. The last thing I want to say before we end is to really uh, experiment this week with the attitude adjustment, especially with loving kindness. And there's a good handout for week five that has the instructions for the loving kindness. And if you want more instruction, one of the things we do every month is we have a loving-kindness uh, practice group the first Friday of the month that Stacey McClendon and I lead, take turns leading. And all of those are recorded and up on the YouTube channel. So you can just get more guided meditations for loving-kindness and more discussions about the loving-kindness practice. 
but you also have everything you need to do the investigation in your own heart and mind all day long. And then what I would encourage you to do is take at least five to 10 minutes during your sets at the beginning of your sets to just work like I did tonight. And we'll do it again together next Tuesday. I'll, I'll do a longer loving kindness meditation, guided meditation for us all. But just take five or 10 minutes at the beginning and just see if you can um, connect with your confidence that this heart is capable of being good, capable of being loving and kind. How do I know? Well, because I can show up to my own experience right now in a kind way. Like I can be willing to feel because it's a kind thing for me to do for myself, like to be intimate and to wish well for myself, right? So then, then I'm actually demonstrating that that confidence was well-placed, because there it is, actual goodness. And we actually feel the generous that, that has kind of an energetic, expansive flavor to it, kindness does. You can get to know it. Kindness is not turning inward and Retreated. That's not kindness. That's something else. Kindness has that like a glow, you know, it, it kind of, and it's indiscriminate. Like it might be, you see a bunny rabbit and there's some kindness there. But when you look at the kindness, you see it isn't actually dependent on the bunny rabbit. That might've been the initial trigger for you to recognize that your heart is capable of being good. But once there's kindness, you'll notice it's really okay going out in all directions. And you want to tune into that expansive, or you could say generous quality of kindness, both when you're sitting, like the first five minutes or so of your sits, but then anytime during the day, even if no one's around you, you don't need another person. You can, as you're closing a door, you can do that in a kind way. You can put your clothes on or take your clothes off at the end of the day in a kind way. Just like we can do that in an irritated way, in an aggressive way, we can take our clothes off, right? So kindness is a functional emotion or attitude anytime. So get interested in it. That's the key. Great. Really nice to have you here. Really appreciate people sticking with the class. One more week. Hope to see you next Tuesday night. Take care, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.